Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, I have an interview with film editor Mark Goldblatt. Mr. Goldblatt has edited Rambo, First Blood Part Two, True Lies, The Terminator, and The Terminator will be shown Saturday, May 11th at the Downtown Public Library at 615 Church Street in the main auditorium at 2 p.m. More later, on to the interview. When you received your Ace Eddie Award 2018 for Career Achievement, congratulations, Mm -hmm. you made the following statement. Be bold in your editing, be aggressive, be fierce and powerful, never be afraid to go to places directors might not even thought to go. You never know. It might be exactly where they need to go. And could you give me an example of this uh, or of a movie that you worked on? Wow. <laughs> Let me think. Well, sure. I think The Terminator is a good, a good example of that. that. That was a movie where basically we had a terrific script and story was great. And Jim shot a lot of good footage. And I discovered that there were ways to cut the stuff together in which there was a kind of kinetic, balletic, kind of rhythmic counterpoint to the narrative. It's something in the style of itself that echoed the themes of the movie. You know, the movie's about an artificial intelligence, a programmed Terminator cyborg, and that's a machine. It's an extension of a computerized mindset that creates the Terminator is programmed to kill. And, in fact, the tagline, the ad line was, it will not stop ever until you are dead. So there's something rhythmic about it. It's robotic. It's machine-like. And I realized, and and Arnold was playing it also as if he was a machine. He was a little more rigid, a little more controlled. And there's a tension throughout the movie as it unfolds, as the tension gets deeper and deeper and deeper, as the action accelerates, that you can echo in the choreography of the movie, of the scenes. So it's funny, somebody once referred to the editing technique of that movie as machine gun editing, rapid fire editing. It wasn't meant to be that way, but it turned out that way. And it was just a, an aggressive form of editing that made the picture exciting and kept it being exciting and ratcheted up the tension until it exploded into the climax. And a lot of it had to do with my love of Russian editing techniques from Eisenstein and counterpointed images. And Terminator lent itself to this very well. So I just let myself go and tried very many things of juxtaposing the images in interesting ways that kept the excitement of a scene kind of made it more stylized than you would generally see. Then the action beats would go on and kind of you, you kind of see repeated time shifts of one thing, you know, you see one camera of something and another camera of something and another camera of something. And it would elongate the action motifs and then make them more spectacular and kind of fascinating on their own accord as if it was a ballet of carnage and destruction. I don't know if that's a little airy-fairy for you, but... 
That's fine. Is that, is that resonate in any way? I'm so, uh, yes, yes, sir. Uh-huh. You've also stated that film is an illusion of movement and images that create the sense of something happening in the movement and time. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of capturing reality, but you can manipulate that reality. And I was wondering why you were editing The Terminator. Could you maybe give me an example of this? Okay, well, the tech noir scene is a very good example of that. Tech noir scene is a scene in, in the bar or the discotheque, where Sarah Connor goes in to take refuge because she knows somebody's after her. She doesn't know who. It's the Terminator who's after her, but she sees Kyle Reese and thinks that he's after her. And she goes into this bar to try to save herself, just to be in a place where there's populated so that, you know, she's safe. And meanwhile, the Terminator is fixated on her. Kyle Reese is fixated on saving her. They all kind of meet at the same time in this bar. And it's a parallel action kind of thing where time, you know, a lot of it's done in slow motion. Jim was uh, had a really great inspiration to slow down time in this scene so that you could see what each character was doing. And it was elongated time so that the Terminator would come in and look around. Sarah Connor is sitting around looking. She doesn't know who's after her, but somebody's after her. Terminator walks in, and his shark light, looking around for Sarah Connor, squinting, looking, and meanwhile everyone's dancing in slow motion, and these characters are kind of breaking through the slow motion as if they're on a date with destiny to kind of meet up, and then all hell's going to break loose. And so it's a slow walk with the rock music going on, and then the rock music merges into score, which creates a tension that something's going to happen, and it really amps up the suspense. So we create this illusion of time standing still and all of the characters moving towards each other until they finally acknowledge each other. And then what's going to happen? And Kyle looks up and sees the Terminator pull out his gun and Sarah Connor sees the Terminator with a gun and is pointing at her. And what's she going to do? And what's the Terminator going to do as he shoots? And then Kyle cocks his gun. And then Sarah looks scared. And then Kyle Reese cocks his gun. And he manages to shoot the Terminator before he shoots Sarah Connor. And then everything goes crazy in the disco and people start running and trying to save themselves. The Terminator is shooting through bodies of people to get to Sarah Connor and try to kill her. And we play with time and space in this scene. And it kind of slows everything down, and we're kind of taking an objective view of the participants. So that's a case where time is our ally in the storytelling. And we can slow it down to a microsecond and examine what's going on beneath the microseconds. Okay. Along with The Terminator, you've edited several action movies, Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, Commando, Terminator 2, and True Lies. Mm -hmm. When you edit an action movie, do you have a philosophy about approaching the genre? I don't have a philosophy, but what I do think is important is to tap into the rhythm of the given scene. An action scene is a scene in which 
you have opposite forces colliding with each other. And out of this collision comes the action, which creates a new forward momentum, and then a new opposition comes up and collides with the previous piece of action to create yet another point of view. So there's a progression and a storytelling in the action. I guess that's one thing that has to be kept in mind, is that you're storytelling, and you're trying to tell a story clearly. And it's really important when you're putting an action scene together to be very clear-cut in what the story points are. Who is doing what to whom? Who is in the car? Who is in the red car? Who is in the green car, if it's a car chase? How are these characters defined in different ways to keep them apart from each other so that you understand what the story is beneath the action? Action is a very hollow concept if there's no empathy for the characters who are going through the action when you're watching the movie. You need to feel what the dramatic stakes are for a person in jeopardy or for a hero who's trying to overtake the bad guys and fight insurmountable odds to win a battle, let's say, or to win the day. So it's all based on storytelling and drama. And if you follow the characters and see what their situations are, then you have an emotional connection to why the action is important. Okay. Uh, you were one of the three editors on Terminator 2, along mm-hmm. with Conrad Buff and Richard A. Harris, and right. because of the tight schedule of the movie, each of you had to work on separate series of scenes for the picture, and this is a two-part question. Um, what scenes did you edit, and how? the second question is, how did you come together to bring the movie as a cohesive whole? Well, that's a very interesting question. You know, basically, we would just each pick parts of the movie that were ready to be edited, that we could concentrate on, and do as self-contained entities within the movie, each of us editing these sequences, and hope that they would all come together as a cohesive whole, stylistically. The one thing that kept it together, of course, was that Jim Cameron directed all of the footage and wrote it all, and it was all very well thought out and planned. And so his stylistic integrity exists in the footage that was presented to all of us. And there's an identity in that footage, a signature from the filmmaker that's very clear. So that's what kept the cohesiveness of the movie together, is that Jim's voice was represented. But more to the point, as editors, we all collaborated together. We would show each other our scenes and talk about them and give each other notes so that we were constantly in touch with each other as to where we were progressing in the completion of the editing of the film. Uh, And then we would go off and just do our thing and interface with Jim, too. He would kind of go and visit with one of us, sit with Conrad for a while on a scene, give some notes, and then Conrad would get some notes and he would continue cutting. And then I would get some notes, and I would continue cutting, and then Richard Harris would get some notes, and he would continue cutting. And it was very good. We were all very collaborative. It was not an egocentric thing for any of us. We collaborated fully, and that helped a lot. uh, But sometimes, you know, it would be, well, nobody's worked on this particular scene, so, Mark, why don't you do this? And Conrad, here's a scene 
Why don't you do the whole canal chase? Because that's all connected. And that's what Conrad did. So we would just all be working on different blocks of the film. I mean, I found that I cut personally a myriad of scenes throughout the picture, but I really spent a lot of time on the last third of the movie. Everything from uh, when Cyberdyne is blown up and the Terminator is after Sarah and all through the big climax of the picture with the T-1000 in the industrial warehouse or industrial plant uh, with the you know, all the gas tank explosions, the helicopter chase, all that stuff that leads up to the climax of the movie. So, yeah, we, we just did different scenes and put them all together, and we'd have a bunch of scenes together, and then maybe one person would work on that bunch of scenes for a while, and then we might switch around and do different parts of the movie. It all worked together, and, you know, Jim Cameron kept us all cohesive, and we each knew what the other person was doing. So it was a great collaboration. We, we Luckily, this group worked together. We worked together, again, all three of us on True Lies subsequently, and had a similarly very positive experience in group editing, just to make a really good and entertaining movie. But what we had, you know, Roger was very smart. He... He hired young people who had limited experience and worked for minimal amounts of money. But the people that he hired were all very passionate about wanting to make movies and loved making movies. And I would say that for most of my friends who were colleagues in the New World days, what we had was a shared enthusiasm, a super enthusiasm for what we were doing. We felt privileged to be in a situation where we could make movies and fun movies, you know, action movies, horror movies, monster movies, where we had a lot of creative freedom as well because we were given unlimited creative freedom as long as we produced results. And that, that was a very, very wonderful playground to be in. So we were driven by passion. And we worked through the long hours because it was great. It was fun. And we were making movies. Also about those days, I've read that Roger Corman would take a new director to lunch before he would start a movie and give him advice. Did he ever do that with you as a film editor before cutting a movie, giving advice on what to do? No, no, no. I think he basically concentrated on the director in terms of his lunch meetings in those days. Because the director was the person that reported to Roger. He was the person responsible for making the movie that Roger wanted to have made. And that's what he would do. But, you know, Roger would come into the editing room as the movie was being put together. And I worked very closely with him on some of these pictures because he had a vision for what he wanted to have done. He had a vision for a kind of pacing, no-nonsense, cut to the bone, keep the action going, deliver the entertainment goods, and uh, keep, the, keep the, the actors moving, keep the camera moving. He did have some good advice for me in editing. I learned a lot, in fact, for editing. I remember once I was doing Humanoids from the Deep, which was a troubled movie, in that when we looked at the first cut, it really didn't deliver 
the goods as a horror movie. It wasn't really working. Uh, we needed to get more graphic and set piece scenes, which we did. You know, it was like, this isn't working. What do we need? How do we do it? We have to reshoot. Let's get this, 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 and this. I remember once he looked at a scene and said, where's the close-up of the major character who is introduced in this scene? Of course, there was no close-up of one of the major characters. And, and this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding film grammar and things that you need to do in a movie. You need to have a point of view. So any scene that you do, you have to understand what the point of view of the scene is. Is it the point of view of the main character? Is it the point of view of one of the secondary characters who's watching the action? Whose point of view is it? This makes you understand how you have to tell the story. And these are decisions that have to be made in storytelling. Uh, it doesn't just happen. You have to think these things out. They start with the screenplay, and then the director realizes the screenplay in a particular way, and that's how stories are told. And interesting stories are well thought out and are planned in, in their original and fresh ways to unfold the story that the audience can enjoy and follow and, and at a pace that keeps the audience interested. So Roger was very in touch with the audience and knew how to please an audience. For those of us that understood these things and were able to execute the making of a movie in a way that delivered the storytelling goods, we all got along very well and made successful pictures, basically. I, I was fortunate in that I, in my career I've worked with a lot of strong directors and producers who had a vision and were willing to do the work that was necessary to make the movie work as well as it possibly could. So, uh, and Roger was certainly somebody that I learned a lot from. I learned a lot from most of the people I worked with. You know, Joe Dante was probably the earliest director I worked with. And he was a self-taught filmmaker and, and a rigorous filmmaker and a passionate filmmaker. And I was privileged to be in his company. And same with Jim Cameron. Yeah, you, I mean, speaking of Joe Dante, you, you were the editor on The Howling, and The Howling credits read edited by Mark Goblet and Joe Dante. And, of course, Joe Dante was the director. And how did you two collaborate together? Well, we collaborated together very well. Um, Joe was originally, I mean, you know, he started off as an editor at New World Pictures, editing trailers for movies. He and Alan Arkish and a few other people worked in the trailer department, and they had to make trailers for movies that would pull people into the movie theaters to see these movies and sell tickets. And they did them very well. So Joe was kind of a self-taught editor, and by the time he got to direct Hollywood Boulevard and then Piranha, which was his first solo picture, his editing skills were finely honed. And I originally worked for Joe as a production assistant and then later as an assistant editor when he was editing movies. Uh, we worked on a film called Grand Theft Auto, directed by Ron Howard, which was Ron Howard's first movie. 
as a director. And I was Joe's assistant. And then he gave me scenes to edit as well, which I did. So we had a natural working relationship going so that when he uh, went on to do Piranha, I was able to stay in the editing room in Los Angeles while he was off shooting in Texas footage for the picture and edited it together and talked to him on the phone about what was happening with the editing. And he would just continue to shoot, and I'd tell him what we were missing, if we were missing a close-up or an insert or a story point wasn't clear. And he would do his best to get the necessary material shot that would fill in the blanks there. And then he came back from location with the film, and then together we, we each had an editing room, and we just continued editing on the film to make it better and better and better. And he, he as a really good editor, it was good for him to be editing and implementing his ideas in the film and me alongside him editing as well and together we made the picture as he evolved as a director he became less interested in hands-on editing and he would allow the editors to edit the pictures himself but he had a very good editorial sense so in the collaboration he was always very incisive about what he wanted to do uh, but it was fun working with him. Great fun. You directed an episode of Erie, Indiana called Mr. Cheney, which deals with the werewolf. Did editing The Howling help you directing this episode? Probably, because uh, The Howling is uh, a quintessential werewolf movie. It's really fun to have worked on a movie where you break new ground in technology and in storytelling, you know, certainly with the makeup effects, the animatronic effects, and bladder effects for the werewolf transformations. So we, we learned about how to make a seamless werewolf transformation, meaning, you know, man turns into wolf. You know, we did it with different stage makeup devices, and you try to make it look like it's happening in real time, even though it's a combination of very different makeups and animatronic heads and so forth. In the Mr. Cheney episode, we actually did a, and I, in fact, I believe it was the first CGI werewolf transformation, because the transformation from man into wolf happened through computer-generated effects, as opposed to makeup effects and dissolves between stages, although we didn't do that in the Howling, we did it in cuts, we didn't dissolve between one shift and another, but... The Howling was a great training ground for learning how to cut a werewolf transformation. I was very fortunate to be there. Oh, and I enjoyed your Hitchcock cameo in that episode. Oh, thank you. And uh, also, the makeup effects for The Howling was done by Rob Bottin, and he's kind of dropped off. You know, he's no longer, is he just retired? Well, Rob is a very private person. So I don't know if he's retired you know, he, even as he's kind of dropped off the feature filmmaking map over the years, did less and less stuff, he continued to occasionally work in commercial work and stuff like that. He's a mystery man. I mean, I, I used to be quite friendly with him, and now I've, I don't think I've spoken to him in years. But uh, he's still out there. He was trying to become a director, and he came very close on several occasions. But it just didn't quite happen. I think he got frustrated with the politics of it. 
He had other means of income through real estate speculation, and I think he just finally defined his own reality. I guess he still does creative work. You know, he's an artist, so he's always doing his art. There's a real loss for the filmmaking community that he doesn't work in these makeups. But, you know, everything transitioned into a different realm when we got into digital technology as well. Now so much stuff is done digitally. That took the makeup artists who were doing mechanical effects as well, kind of put them in a secondary position because that, that kind of work is much more rarefied these days. It's a shame that Rob didn't get to do more work because his work was sublime. He is a genius, no question about it. Innovative, fantastic. I'm a big fan of the Danny Perry cult movie books. And, oh, great books. And in Cult Movies 3, he writes about the Terminator, and he states, you were a movie buddy in the 60s at the University of Wisconsin. Can you mm-hmm. tell me about those days and what movies you went to see? Oh, my God. Yes, I loved those days. That, that, that was one of the highlights of my life, and it certainly prepared me for the long road ahead and my journey to Hollywood and working at New World Pictures, for example. That was the culmination of all of my love for cinema that I was able to satiate and satisfy at the University of Wisconsin. I was there from 1966 through early 1970, undergraduate. I majored in philosophy, but I lived film. Now, we had a very active film environment in those days, In the 60s, it was a burgeoning time for film lovers, on college campuses especially, because there were a number of film societies that programmed very eclectic slates of films, and it was a great opportunity to not only to see obscure films and and broaden one's horizons, but if you were involved in film from the inside out, like I was, I, I eventually migrated into a film society, which was called the Union Film Committee. It was a student union programming films for its 60-seat theater, which showed movies every weekend in 35mm and 16mm, depending on what gauge you got. And also in a much larger theater, we'd have special events. Uh, and program filmmakers coming with their films to talk about it. I got to bring Jean-Luc Godard to the University of Wisconsin campus and drive him around and show one of his latest movies. We brought uh, Rip Torn out, who was starring in a Norman Mailer film. You know, Norman Mailer used to make independent movies, so we would show Norman Mailer films, and we had Rip Torn as a special guest. But we had this movie theater that we programmed every weekend. We showed great films like uh, Night of the Living Dead, which was fresh from the drive-in, which a number of us saw it when it first opened at the drive-ins. And it was such a seminal movie that we booked it for the campus immediately. So imagine 35-millimeter print of Night of the Living Dead playing all weekend long at our little theater. Most people didn't know anything about this movie. So we publicized it as much as possible and got people in. This was the beginning of the making of a cult movie, Night of the Living Dead. By the time the weekend was over, people who had gone to see that movie would go see the movie, they'd go home, they'd put on makeup and come back to the theater dressed as ghouls, and a bunch of them were 
walking around eating chicken legs and stuff, drumsticks, just to scare the people who were coming out of the movie. It was amazing. And so we had a lot of really, really smart film people there. I started writing film criticism concurrently while I was at the University of Wisconsin. I went to see the supervising film critic at the Daily Newspaper, Daily Cardinal, and he let me write a review of a movie of my choice, which was an audition piece, and I wrote on Michelangelo Antonioni's Red Desert, and he liked it, and he said, great, you're on the staff, and so I got to write film reviews. And then subsequently, and and by the way, this film editor, not a film editor like cutting film like I do, but he was a film editor for the paper. His name was Larry Cohn, Lawrence D. Cohn. He went on to write the screenplay for Carrie years later, which was a legendary screenplay of a great movie for Brian De Palma. Other people that we had in the film scene was uh, Joe... McBride, Joseph McBride, who's a great film writer, wrote great books about Orson Welles, John Ford, just published a new book, just came out, How Did Lubitsch Do It, about Ernst Lubitsch. He was on our film committee. He also ran the Wisconsin Film Society with Michael Wilmington, who became the chief film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. I think it was the Sun-Times. And they also both wrote trade papers over the years. And Wilmington Hills, well, I think he might have even written for the New York Times at a certain point. Joe McBride wrote for Variety. So we have a body of really good film people who came out of these 60s Madison, Wisconsin times. And it's funny, when I came out to Hollywood, I got in touch with Joe McBride because he was out here. And he uh, knew Orson Welles because he had written a book about him. And Joe was acting in Welles' last film production, which was called The Other Side of the Wind, which they were shooting starring John Huston and Peter Bogdanovich, and Joe was in the movie as well, and he got me a gig as an extra on that film, just come out and act for a few nights in crowd scenes that were shot at Bogdanovich's house for The Other Side of the Wind. So there was a legacy, there was a trajectory of influence from the film days in Madison, Wisconsin, to the film days out here. In fact, Joe McBride wound up working at New World on uh, Rock and Roll High School, which was directed by my friend Alan Arkish, and he did uh, one of the drafts of the screenplay and worked on the script. So it's a small world about how things intertwine. My friend Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator, was a great theater director in Madison in the days we were there and directed many transgressive pieces of work. Peter Pan, they used to call it the new Peter Pan, because Peter Pan and the Lost Boys were hippies, and Captain Hook had a motorcycle gang, and they were at odds with each other. And so they all, the hippies, of course, did psychedelic drugs in the play, and it was a very interesting play. And the Lost Boys and girls had kind of a be-in in the play, and they wound up taking their clothes off, and that's when the campus police came and shut the production down. So we'd have theater that was always stopped by the police because it went too far. But they were pushing the boundaries. And, of course, Stewart went on to push the boundaries of horror films with Reanimator and made an instant classic. 
So I'm very enamored of my days at University of Wisconsin and the film scene there, and it was crucial in my development as a filmmaker. I was listening to the audio commentary on The Ambassador, and you talked about Robert Mitchum and Rock Hudson being the consummate screen professionals, about the way they matched actions and looping. And the way you talked, I'm wondering, is this like an art of a bygone era in film acting? Well, I would say in a qualified sense, that's true. Because the studio system kept people working in a very rigorous way, but a lot of actors pick up and understand the technical aspects of their work. It's just it was more formalized in the studio system. I mean, I, at least it was apparent to me that when watching Mitchum and Rock Hudson, for example, when we did ADR and looping for their lines, they were brilliant. They could do it at the drop of a dime. They could just match every action, every vocal inflection, and do it right and get it right the first time. It's a sense of craft, of knowing what lens is being used, how you're being lit, what the camera is seeing of you, how big to create the emotion on your face in an aesthetic sense uh, for aesthetic distance. They just understood how to act for the camera. But, you know, we have modern-day actors who can do it, too. But it just seems less rigorous. I mean, maybe I'm a romantic about it. But there was something that I really respect about the craft of film acting. It just seemed more precise. But, you know, things happen. We go through time changes and time shifts. I was just very impressed with their sense of craft. Think about acting. It's a craft and an art. And some people who take it really seriously have elevated it to a fine art. When you see that kind of professionalism. It's just awe-inspiring. It inspires me. You directed a movie called Dead Heat, and Mm -hmm. you had to bring it before the MPAA Motion Picture Association of America nine times to get Mm -hmm. an R rating. And this process is always fascinating to me. Could you talk about what was the problem that you had to take it before them nine times? Well, I mean, one of the reasons that we had to take it so many times is that we wouldn't give up. One of the things about that movie was it it has certain gore effects. It's about a decomposing zombie policeman. It's kind of a remake of TOA, or inspired by TOA, which was a noir film of the 40s. And in that movie, TOA, a guy is poisoned by uh, radium poisoning. And he's got like 12 hours to live, during which time he has to find out who it is who killed him, who his murderer was, so he can get revenge, or else he just dies. So in this movie, the character is killed and brought back to life, but he's going to decompose over 24 hours. So body parts are kind of falling off his limbs, and characters are disintegrating. And we kind of made visual puns of this kind of physical humor, body part humor, if you will. And it was kind of funny stuff, but see, the MPAA had a policy of uh, wanting it to be less intense. Everything had to be less intense. Well, the theories of Grand Guignol horror uh, films are about over-the-top gore. 
I mean, that's what we were dealing with in this movie. So we just kept pushing the envelope, trying to get a little more, even though they would keep having us scale everything back and make it a little less intense. It was better when there was more, I think, in, in a movie of this type. So we just would trim it a little bit, and then they say, no, you got to trim it more. And we trim it more, but then we put a little back. And we just kept going and going and going. The idea was to tire them out and just let them finally say, okay, 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 you can have it. It was kind of a frustrating time, yeah. but we, we did the best we could. And the irony is, of course, today you can get away with much more stuff than you ever could have gotten away with in the 80s. It's just all relative. We just didn't want to cut the good stuff out. You've done commentaries on trailers for hell about City of the Living Dead and Tenebrae, and on your mm-hmm. audio commentaries you've discussed Pinio DiNaggio and Ennio Morricone and Mario Bava and the bird with the crystal plumage. And Could you discuss your passion for giallo filmmaking? Well, giallo films are a genre that I just really love. I can't really explain what it is about them. I've always loved mysteries to begin with. And uh, giallos are a derivative of classical mysteries, but they're much more lurid and, and violent and stylized. They're very operatic and bigger than life. From the first time I saw a giallo film, which I imagine that I consciously clocked as a giallo film. I saw it before I saw Blood and Black Lace, which is a seminal giallo film by Mario Bava, which precedes Dario Argento's work. There's a whole lineage and a interrelationship between the works of these different giallo filmmakers. Anyway, I just find them fascinating. They're just highly entertaining. They're mysterious. They're true mysteries. So as I said, I've always loved mysteries. Uh, and mysteries on a metaphysical level, too, like Antonioni, who does mysteries. David Lynch does mysteries. Uh, although David Lynch doesn't make Jalo films, but there's a relationship between the kind of work that Lynch does and the kind of work that Dario Argento does, in that they both take place in an alternate reality of dreams. There's something very dreamlike about the Jalo film. So that's just a genre that fascinates me. And I can interrelate it to my favorite fantastic filmmakers. As I said, David Lynch, David Cronenberg, people like that. All of them are individual artists who have their own fixations and obsessions and are not necessarily Jalo filmmakers, but they do deal in the fantastic. They do deal with a world of dreams based on dreams or a dreamlike environment in their movies. Louis Bunuel also falls into that category very loosely. It's great terrain for filmmaking. It's just great stuff. Final question. Among the many directors you've worked with, Joe Dante, James Cameron, Clive Barker, Michael Bay, Eli Roth, Neil Blomkamp, Paul Verhoeven, what makes a good collaboration between the director and film editor? Well, I think a shared shared vision You've got to both be on the same page, not only about the film that you're working on, but probably on the way you view reality to begin with. It helps if you're like-minded in certain ways, that you view the world in certain ways, that you view the possibilities of 
artistic expression and cinematic expression in the same ways. When I said, go for it, go push beyond boundaries, try to do amazing stuff when you're editing and stuff, it means that you should be open to new concepts and ideas and new ways of expressing yourself, new ways of editing a movie. You need to be open to the possibilities because that's what is the palette that exists for all of us who work in the visual arts is that we have the possibility of doing all kinds of stuff. We can express all kinds of emotions and tell all kinds of stories and we can do it in interesting ways there's an opportunity to push the envelope. And I've always enjoyed working with directors who want to push the envelope and that have a love and a passion for the kinds of stories that they're telling. I mean, they're not doing it as a job. They're doing it because they have to do it. They have to celebrate this communication and unfolding of images and sound and dramaturgy that we've put into a capturing system that we call motion pictures. And it's a fantastic art form, and without limits. There's no borders. And so I feel very fortunate that I've worked with strong directors who are willing to take a giant leap and jump off the cliff and take risks to create new concepts of film. I would like to thank Mark Goblet for granting an interview. Remember, The Terminator will be shown Saturday, May 11th at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium at 2 p.m. Today's music is from The Terminator by Brad Fidel. Mm-hmm.